You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read black books and they are talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black, that's okay. This week on the show, we are continuing a three-part series on Cedric J. Robinson's Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. If you didn't listen to part one, uh, go back, listen to it, did it last week. So this week on part two... We read part two of the book. We're going to talk about part two of the book. Before we do that, we'll do a brief overview of what the book is about. Very brief this time, because we already did that last week. And a little recap of part one, also very brief. And then we'll go into part three, or part two. Kind of do some detailed overview there. And then just talk about some things I was interested in. There are a lot of, like, little interesting things here. And I don't want to get too bogged down in talking about, like, the theories behind... um, what's happening here, like discussing them as if I can really argue with the the great uh, Cedric J. Robinson because I don't have the scholarship, I've not done the reading to to truly argue with what's here. But I have some questions and stuff, so I'll raise those. Um, but okay, so let's hop in. Part one, well, first of all, the, the thesis of the book is essentially that capitalism is better critiqued by black radicalism, um, which we've yet to define. We've yet to define it yet, so just... Keep it there in the back of your mind. But capitalism is better critiqued by black radicalism than it is by Marxism. And uh, the reason for this is because there are many reasons. But one of the reasons is that Marxism and capitalism spring from the same font of European thought. And um, they both have inherent flaws. And that's what part one really concentrates on purely Europe and the flaws in capitalism and the flaws in marxism and it, and that's where it's that's where it starts and stops in part one there's no mention of africa there's no black people uh, nothing nothing like that in part one it's all just about europe um so he establishes the inherent flaws before we move on to part two there was a little funny part out of part one that i forgot to mention um so in part one we start at feudalism and we move to capitalism which is not linear but uh, you know linear enough and then we go on to marxism and um the first international and some unions being formed and so at some point um cedric j robinson writes it was a whig ministry that sanctioned three years later the transportation of the laborers of Tolpuddle in dorsetshire who had had the insolence to form a trade union so here he's remarking about the um the beginnings of uh, trade unions in, in England and the pushback from the powers that were and that continue to be. And so these workers were um, sanctioned by the Whig ministry for a transportation because they formed a trade union. A transportation. So I didn't know what that meant. And it, this, this was footnoted. So I went and clicked on the footnote and it said, transportation was, of course, to penal colonies in Australia. So... You have um, this <laughs> this boat full of people, and one guy's like, "Hey, what did you do? Oh, I I killed a guy for a loaf of bread because I'm poor because it's you know hundreds of years ago, but still, you killed a guy." Not saying that you know 
that he shouldn't have had bread, right? Obviously, there's there's reasons that crimes are committed. So that's that's a different conversation. But anyway, what'd you do? I killed a guy. What did you do? I joined a trade union. You know, not not great. Doesn't seem like comparable crimes. Um, anyway, I thought that was funny. All right, moving on. Part two. Part two is about. Um, well, let's just give you the title. Part two is titled The Roots of Black Radicalism. So now we are moving away from Europe and we're talking about black radicalism. And so this this covers a lot of ground. It goes over the origins of the slave trade, including like the justifications that led up to it, and then the logistics of it and the uprisings that happen. And so the justifications part is the part that I think is probably the most interesting. I, I don't think I'm really going to talk about the logistics too much. Uh, the uprisings are also interesting. So there's there's four chapters, but really the fourth chapter is very short. It's just like a recap chapter, just a few pages. So really there's three chapters. And the, the middle chapter is the logistics chapter, probably the least interesting. But the most, or the two most interesting chapters are the justifications for why the slave trade happened. And then the actual uprisings as a result of the slave trade. And those are really the roots of black radicalism, those those uprisings. Um uh yeah so okay um and 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 we should say instead of just slave uprisings also you know uh, connect these things also to liberation movements um uh people in in africa who um who fought against uh colonialism so that it because that's part of cedric j robinson's point is that this is a unifying african um thought right both in the diaspora and in africa itself so um we should say that he does not just point to slave uprisings in the new world. He also points back to um, resistance movements and liberation movements in the motherland. All right. Uh, but all right. So the justifications of the slave trade. So Robinson basically starts with, let's go and read a little bit first of of what he starts with here. Um, this is about 30 pages in, but I think it's a good 30 pages into chapter four, but I think it's a good um, way to think of what he's what he's trying to accomplish here. He says, the obliteration of the African past from European consciousness was the culmination of a process a thousand years long and one at the root of European historical identity. His The reason he's saying this is because um, it was important that Europeans forget about any contact they had with Africa before uh, the slave trade started, now, before the age of discovery. Because if they remembered that, that wouldn't work for the way that they um, could justify going out and colonizing the rest of the world. So they had to forget that they had had contact with Africans, had seen them as people, had seen their civilizations, and had seen how they lived. They had to erase all of that. Um, And so he gives proof of contact by talking about Egypt and Greece and Rome. And and this is the introduction of a very important concept throughout this uh, section, which is erasure. Um, I don't think Robinson uses the term erasure. And I think most, most of the time when we use that term now, we use it to mean like, um, something that was created by a community, let's say the black community, one that we're familiar with. Um, and, uh, then is, uh, culturally appropriated by a different community and there's no credit given back. I mean, that's one form of erasure. And I think that's probably the most common form that's talked about these days. The form of erasure he's talking about here is a much bigger um, metaphysical task, and it helps lay the groundwork for the age of discovery, colonization, and and the slave trade. 
So he goes through and talks about the different, um, the different uh, high civilizations of Africa, the different meeting points between Europe and Africa um, before, uh, before, uh, before the Christian era. And um, the, probably the thing that I thought was most interesting here is Egypt. Egypt always factors pretty interesting to me, but not for the reasons that um, it's interesting when you're a kid. I think Egypt's interesting when you're a kid because, you know, they, they show you the pyramids and you learn about Anubis and Horus and, um, you know, there's gods and uh, the Nile. And it's just kind of like one of the ancient civilizations you learn about. I think it's interesting uh, as a concept of erasure because Egyptologists love to separate Egypt from Africa. Um, European historians and historians of European descent love to separate Egypt from Africa. And one of the things I was never taught and didn't know until a few months ago was that Nubia, I knew about Nubia, I knew it existed. I knew it was in Upper Egypt, which is um, technically Southern Egypt. I knew all of that. I didn't know there were black pharaohs. Um, I had no idea. And I didn't know that Nubia had its own pyramids. I didn't really know about that. I mean, I may have known that. But I didn't know that Nubia ruled Egypt and that black pharaohs sat on the throne for, you know, a couple hundred years. And that's another example of erasure. Um, and it may seem like that's not what Cedric J. Robinson's talking about because he's saying like, uh, you know, this process is a thousand year long process and it's at the root of European historical identity. So maybe, maybe it may seem like he's saying like, oh no, that's what they were doing back then, right? The people who were there at the age of discovery um, several centuries ago were participating in this erasure of Egyptian um, history. But actually, that reverberation has lasted until now. So that I, uh, you know, relatively well-educated um, citizen of America who likes to read up on history, I, I didn't know that. Now, I've asked um, African friends if they were aware of this. Uh, and um, two of my friends from Ghana were aware of it. Um, so I think uh, my buddy from Cameroon was not. But uh, I want to get that right. I don't want him coming back at me being like, no, I knew. But I'm pretty sure he didn't know. Um, but he's got his own history to worry about. He doesn't have to worry about this larger history. I just think that that's um, a, a minor example of erasure. But you get the idea. This has continued to happen throughout history. And it started a thousand years ago. It's not just that they were doing it, um, that they're that it's happening now or is been happening since like you know because i think a lot of times we think of it as like oh america doesn't teach us these things and so we have a black history month and all that and that's that's certainly true that's one that's one area where where uh where erasure has happened and we've fought back but this one this one that cedric j robinson's talking about so let's get back to the reason he's bringing it up his point is you erase the history then the people cease to be people so this section goes to his idea of the establishment of the negro once Europe could say, oh, those people over there? Never heard of them. Never had contact with them. Wait, wait, people? Oh, the Negroes. No, they're not people. They're not diverse. They're not from different countries. They're not from different tribes. They are all simply Negroes. I have no idea about their high civilizations. I have no idea about any of their uh, culture 
it doesn't matter if they had a culture because I haven't heard of it. And so um, this was an attempt to erase cultural history, to erase history history, history that they had actually participated in. And um, to use Cedric J. Robinson's uh, term, it was, it, was a, it was an attempt to crush ontological totality, which um, black radicalism fought to preserve in the African mind, right? Those are Robinson's words, not mine. Um, so that's what this first section is about, establishing the fact that Europeans actively tried to erase this history so that they could justify going out and discovering, which is a fun term for what they did, going out and discovering the rest of the world and then um, subjugating, subsequently subjugating the rest of the world. Because if you view all the people who are outside of your historical worldview as non-people, or if you view them as part of your destiny, right? We use manifest destiny in America. Let's just apply it here. If you view them that way, then it all makes sense. Well, of course, these people here, they're underutilizing this place. It was made for me to go out there and uh, take it over. These people over there, they're underutilizing that place. Ah, I should come along and streamline it, make it better. Um, and so he continues to talk about different reasons why this happened. He mentions um, uh, religion and how um, that was always kind of a, uh, a way to get in. You know, we're going to spread Christianity, right? But often that was just um, a Trojan horse. Um, and then uh, on a lighter note, <laughs> on a lighter note, because I don't want to just be so bleak and, hey, listen, I... I didn't write the book, so I get to make, I get to be lighter if I want to. Um, he he's got this little passage here. I'll just read it. He says, "With Prester John, and we're, we'll talk about who Prester John is in just a moment. With Prester John's co cooperation, perhaps a new spout, uh, spice route could be established. With caravans crossing Africa from Morocco to the Red Sea and bringing pepper and cloves to Lisbon." Um, I just like to imagine that the entire world was colonized because Europeans needed spices. They, they didn't know how to season their food and they just had to go out and colonize the whole world. Um, anyway, uh, I mean, it's like only half of a joke because of course that's, that's, uh, was the reason the, the, the Dutch East India's company was, um, even established was, I think that that was the reason the entire stock market was established, right? The first thing that was traded on the stock market was spices. Um, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. All right. Um, the need to season your food will drive you to some crazy ends. Okay. So that is a uh, more or less what that first chapter is about justifications for creating the Negro justifications for dehumanizing African people and subsequently Asian peoples and uh, Middle Eastern peoples and anybody else that they could get their hands on to dehumanize. And, um, and then, so we go into chapter five, which, uh, talks about the logistics of the slave trade and how, um, the Portuguese were, uh, prominently featured. And uh, this, this chapter really is just tons of logistics. I, I mean, in my notes, I took, let me see here. I think I wrote two sentences down the entire time. Um, I would say the biggest takeaway from this chapter is just that slavery and capitalism are linked. Not even a big takeaway, just like an actual point that Robinson wanted to get across was that slavery and capitalism were linked because um, some people 
think that they're not. And he wanted to be clear that they are. And that is important because the entire concept of black radicalism, I'm assuming a mistake there, not the entire concept of black radicalism, but certainly aspects of black radicalism um, come from slave uprisings uh, as a response to capitalism. And um, uh, it, it wouldn't work to have, uh, to have uh, black radicalism be a critique of capitalism if slavery weren't included in that capitalist... Um, uh, modes of production right which you know um i guess technically it, it wasn't and chapter five gets into that a little bit about marx's views on on uh on slavery and uh where they fit into um the theory of capitalism and the theory of marxism um but uh more or less we're going to accept uh me at least i'm going to accept you can do whatever you want i'm going to accept that cedric j robinson is right and that these two things are linked and that um you know, depending on what study you read, that the that slavery was actually uh, a major factor in the economy of the New World. Um, whether or not it was an efficient factor, that's not that's more of the question, I guess. It it's certainly a factor. Everybody knows that, but whether or not it was an efficient factor, um, yeah. Well, that's that's what's up for debate. But okay, uh, we'll leave chapter five there and go on to chapter six, which is uh, titled "The Historical Archaeology of the Black." radical tradition and so here he continues to talk about erasure um he quotes at length uh john blassingame who wrote one of the first works of um one of the first works about slavery written from the perspective of the enslaved it was called the slave community um plantation life in the antebellum south it is a foundational text in the study of slaves and um, the, the culture of, of slave life. And so uh, this part of the book is talking about um, talking about how the stereotypical views of uh, slavery are just wrong. Um, that slaves didn't behave the... Um, the way that people often portray them to have behaved in novels or popular works of fiction or something like that. Um, so he goes through that and talks about that. And then he talks about the initial slave trade and why it happened. Um, and uh, the, the main idea was that um, because the indigenous American people, the, the indigenous people of America, um, the native Americans were decimated, uh, there was a labor shortage. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So they already had, and from the previous chapter, we had the justifications for going out and dehumanizing populations, which they had started with, with as soon as they arrived in the New World. And then um, once they ran out of indigenous people, they were like, well, we need new people to come in. And so they just started importing um, African slaves. And they had already worked out a justification for it. They weren't humans. Well, there you go. <sighs> well, from that point, Robinson begins to document um, slave fugitive slave communities, and he he documents them because he wants to show that um, from the beginning, from the jump, there was a tradition of uh, resistance to slavery, and he goes through with Mexico. He goes to Brazil. I believe both of those are in the 16th century. 
then Jamaica in the 17th century, um, then Colombia and Venezuela, and then uh, British and French uh, Guiana, and then Dutch Suriname, and then and then uh, North America. So that's a lot. And um, he goes through all of these uh, slave uprisings and chronicles them and just kind of talks about, you know, the the who, what, when, where, and why, really. It just gives you the, the, the gist of it. And there's not a lot of takeaway here. It's not like he's um, with each one that he's trying to say a certain thing. He's just accumulating evidence and showing you, like, here's a time of resistance happened. Here's a time of resistance happened. Here's a time of resistance happened. And what this is doing, at least in my mind, is establishing the idea of, one, of course, black radicalism, but also establishing the idea of kind of this, it's kind of this universal proletariat idea that didn't happen organically with um, Marxism. And I think that's what we're going to have, that he's going to point out in in the third section, is that all of these uprisings are more or less a a version of a, a kind of um, naturally occurring, uh, universal, uh, proletarianism, um, which is like an interesting idea. Um, we don't need a universal proletariat. We are the universal proletariat. Um, and in order for that to be true, slavery has to be included inside of these theories. If slavery is not included, then, then it's just like, well, no, the proletariat's the working class, but just, you know, kind of mashing these terms together, um, I think uh, I think Robinson's point is forget the working class. Just let's go with the lowest strata of society. How did they do in critiquing capitalism? Well, here, let me give you 20 examples. And so he does. All right. So that pretty much covers part two. Whew. Okay. Now, I would like to talk about, I guess, um, has Robinson convinced me um i think i'm starting to come around to his way of thinking i think i'm starting to come around to his way of thinking i I think he sums it up really well in chapter seven there are some long passages here too long to read on the podcast but that really kind of bring it all together and, and and show exactly what he's getting at and um i think it's a good summation i think one of the interesting things would be to know how many how many uprisings happen in other parts of the world because part of his thinking is that there's a, about black radicalism is that it's a it's a uniquely african um and when he says african he means africa plus afro-american plus new world all the diaspora everything um but one of his points is that it's a uniquely african mode of thinking informed by a cultural history and uh, again an ontological totality, right? And that, um, and that, and that, that, that's true. And so I guess it would be interesting to see uprisings that were happening in, um, Asia and, um, the Middle East and, uh, compare and contrast with that, because then maybe that would be a, a sign that it wasn't, but I, you know, not, not saying that would prove anything, but just kind of curious if that would, if that would, um, change matters. But, um, the idea of the the lowest strata of society um, organically uh, coming together and challenging the power structure is great. Um, 
true, demonstrably true. He has, these are all very well sourced. They happened. I don't think anybody would argue with them. So I can come around to that mode of thinking. Um, I can get behind that. And the idea that just um, radicalism is an inherent uh, African thought, um, thought process. I can get behind it. I haven't been convinced, but I haven't been, I certainly haven't been turned off by the idea. I haven't been not convinced, I guess I would say. All right. I want to talk about some, so that's, that's what I would say so far through these, um, through these first two parts. I am certainly interested to see how he brings around the third part. Cause now he's got to synthesize the radical. He's, he's given us the foundation of radicalism. Now he's got to synthesize it and show us that it's like a, a living, breathing, um, mode of thought and uh i think that part might be easier actually i mean not easy but just easier all right let's let's go quick here and just talk about some things that i didn't know uh throughout this part two section all right first of all uh first one would be jung he which uh he was a chinese explorer um he is he was uh somehow assigned to the city of nanjing i have i i live in nanjing china i've been to things that have jung he's name on it there is a jung he boat park in this city, I've lived here for 10 years, and I had no idea that this man had traveled to East Africa. Uh, yeah, so that was interesting. Okay, moving on, moving on quickly. Um, Prince Henry the Navigator. I did not know that this man kicked off the Age of Discovery. I did not know that he existed. Uh, and I asked people in my office if they know who he existed. Uh, other teachers, they had no idea who he was. Um, We've all heard of uh, Magellan and other, uh, you know, Columbus, obviously, and uh, Marco Polo and, and whatnot. But we had never heard of Prince Henry the Navigator, and he's credited as kicking off the Age of Discovery. Again, a fun name for, for what actually happened. Um, so didn't know about him. Prester John, so that was brought up earlier. I had no idea this legend even existed. I had no idea it was part of the impetus for the Age of Discovery. So very briefly, basically, Prester John was this idea that... um. He's this Christian emperor who has a Christian empire somewhere outside of a known Christendom. And uh, maybe it's over in Persia or maybe it's in um, the the Orient or something. And then they settle on, oh no, it's in Ethiopia. Oh yeah, it's in Ethiopia. And, uh, and so the basic idea was that somewhere out there in the world, there's this, this, um, this empire that is, you know ours more or less it belongs to christendom and we just got to go find it and then we can hook up and just rule the rest of the world being good christian rulers who um colonize everybody and subjugate them anyway i had no idea that legend existed i had no idea that, that legend helped spur on the age of discovery um so uh, maybe i'm ignorant or maybe uh like me you had no idea too all right, the fourth one on this list, Marinage, Maroons, uh, Mar Maroon communities in the United States. No idea. Had no idea about any of this. Um, I definitely knew about slave uprisings in the New World. I knew that, obviously, the ha Haitian Rebellion and um, Jamaica. Uh, I, I didn't know that there were um, Marinage communities within the United States. And probably the most interesting one is the Great Dismal Swamp Maroons. Um, which were just a, a group of people who inhabited the swamplands of the Great Dismal Swamp in Virginia, North Carolina. And they did it for like 160 years. I had no idea about this. 
keeping with our theme of erasure. And uh, yeah, and, and Cedric J. Robinson points out, you know, obviously you, you don't want to tell people about this too much because then they might get the idea that, uh, hey, maybe we should all be free. So that was the original reason for the suppression. Why these things are still being suppressed, ignored, etc. Well, we saw with the Tulsa massacre that just um, surfaced uh, last year on the TV series The Watchmen. Once things are erased from history, it's really hard to get them back. So... I was not aware of the term marinage. I was not aware of the term maroons. Um, I had no idea about any of that. And going along with that, I had no idea about Bush Negroes, which were marinage communities in British and uh, French Guiana. Um, the, basically, they just escaped to the bush, lived out there, started their own communities, and were like, cool, don't come out here or it's going to be a problem. Um didn't know about that. That's awesome. And then um, kind of lastly, last one, last rapid fire one here is Obia. Obia? Obia? Uh, didn't know about this as a Jamaican, um, like, uh, traditional African religion. I knew about hoodoo and voodoo and Santeria, but I just never heard about Obia. Um, and there's like a hundred other things I'd never heard about in this part two there it, it was a long section and <laughs> there's a lot of um there's a lot going on so um all right before we end i'd like to do two things i'd like to talk about the style of writing which i've not really talked about at all and then i would like to read a quote and then we're going to end all right the style of writing of this book is obviously academic it's scholarly i'll say this about academic writing in general um Academic writing can be very jargon-heavy and wordy, and it can tend towards word soup, but I think with uh, to extend that metaphor, just like in real life, you get some hearty, good, tasty soups, and then you get other soups, you know, you can, you can take or leave, you know. There's a lot of stuff going on in a minestrone, and I enjoy it, and um, then you get some other soups, clam chowder, you know, it's not my thing. Um, so Robinson, he's a scholar and an academic. There's definitely a lot of words going on in here. Um, this is not the kind of book I, I say I would say that you could read reclined on the sofa, right? This is a straight back chair, reading it, taking notes, paying attention to it kind of thing. And part of that is the writing style, and then part of it is the density of information. There's just a lot going on. So as far as writing goes... Um, there's that, okay? So as far as writing goes, there's that. Okay. Um, I'm going to end with the quote, and then we're going to end it. This one's running a bit longer than usual, but hey, it's not too long. Uh, so, all right, I'll end with a quote. Um, in talking about these slave uprisings and different liberation movements throughout the uh, African world and the New World, um, there were a lot of good quotes, too many to, to read on the podcast, and we're already at... 30 minutes long, so um, I will just read my favorite of the quotes, which was, Outlandish Africans often reacted to their new condition by attempting to escape, either to return to Africa or to form settlements of fugitives to recreate their old life in the new land. Outlandish Africans, I will live every day of my life, for the rest of my life, hoping to be called an outlandish African. All right, that's going to do it for this week. 
next week we finish this bad boy off part three the trilogy don't miss it until then stay safe stay black and keep reading